Welcome to the IMDb Journey podcast, where we break down one movie a week from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews, and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson, and I have sitting next to me our guest, John. Say hi, John. And uh, he's a bit shy. Sorry, folks. <laughs> not Harvey. No. Um, and I'm Dan, and I hope I'm not talking to myself right now. And today, we'll be breaking down the 2001 Best Picture winner, A Beautiful Mind. Dean, how you been this last week? Yep, pretty good. Same as, same as every week. I'm, every always, week. I'm always good. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm all right too. I've done absolutely nothing this week. I feel like work has taken over a bit this week because usually I can knock out a, a couple more movies than I have this week and not be like falling asleep as I do it. But this week, I don't know what's happened. Maybe I'm becoming uh, immune to caffeine, I guess, because I, I've fallen asleep like three different times this week while watching a movie. Do you drink bizarre. coffee late? Uh, my last coffee is about four o'clock and that usually rides me out until about... 10 o'clock at night or something, but the last couple of nights, I've just been dead to the world, and I, I, I just seems like it's not working anymore. Yeah, I normally don't drink coffees after, say, midday even, because yeah. I know it'll keep me up at night. And, like, I've got to get up early for work, so I make sure I don't stay up No, you're just soft. I, I stay up late at night and get up early. I get up earlier than you, and I go to bed later than you. You're just an old man. <laughs> not as old as you. No, I'm actually, well, I'm, turn, I'm turning 31 <laughs> in a couple of days. Yes, you are. Yeah. Jeez, that's... Uh, it's a bit rough, 31. It is rough, mm. I feel for you. <laughs> no, but I can tell this week's going to be a lot better coming up, not just because it's my birthday, but because Infinity War is out in a couple of days. Pumped for that. That'll be good. We'll definitely be reviewing that on the next podcast, I'll tell you that, so keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I think uh, that was my number one, maybe most anticipated film yeah, of you this were, year. you so. were all over that. And like every every trailer I've seen, everything I've read about it, like it's all very hush hush. But everything just makes me more and more excited to see this thing. It's super long as well, which is fantastic. So yeah, I'm I'm really pumped for it. Awesome. So if you're new to the podcast, first of all, welcome. Glad to have you on this journey with us. Please make sure you subscribe to us so you get instant notifications of when new episodes are up. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps, as well as our host site, Spreaker. So, thank you to them. And to all listeners, new and old out there, we'd love for you to help spread the word about the podcast, chat with your other movie-loving friends, perhaps drop in the middle of a convo about how awesome the podcast is and how the Nash Equilibrium shows that 100% of people who listen to the IMDb Journey podcast do not regret their decision. Maybe even leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes. You idiot. <laughs> Leave a five-star review on iTunes, guys, to help us move up the charts for even more people to notice us. In fact, we did decide this week to add a little bit more of an incentive for all of you out there. We decided that once we get up to 50 iTunes reviews, we'll randomly draw a review out, and that reviewer will get to choose the next film for us on the breakdown. Does so, it have to be one from the IMDb Top 250? It most definitely does have to be one. I just want to clarify, because... And it knows... also has to be one that we haven't done before. Well, okay? I'm not going <laughs> to... <laughs> You're going to get some pick, smart ass out there. Hey, guys, I done. really want you to do Vertigo again. <laughs> no. <laughs> so get those fingers typing, guys. So we've got a couple... Oh, we've got a few, um, new, got a re- few. new reviews on iTunes this week. So let's read them out. This one's by Film Roast Podcast at Film Roast Show. Daniel and Dean are attempting what all of us movie lovers want to do, diving into the IMDb Top 250 and evaluating the films on the list. They're both personable, fun, and give fascinating feedback. They also keep you updated on the list and how it changes and evolves. Solid film analysis and beautiful accents. Thank you very much. I've been working on mine for some time now. Yeah, about 30 years. (laughs) We also have one here from the Flicks for Kicks podcast at Flicks for Kicks Pod. As a film buff, this is exactly what I've been looking for. Subbed instantly. Lots of fun information. Thanks for that, guys. 
Thank you. Next one's from Jimbo at the Pilots and Petards podcast at Pilots and Petards. Unfortunately, I have not watched any of the movies Dean and Daniel have reviewed. (laughs) I found their podcast to be a great way to see if a movie is worth watching. I'm very excited to watch the movie Your Name. Thanks, gentlemen, and keep up the good work. Thank you. I hope you do watch some of these movies because some of them are classics, Jimbo. That's That's right. We also have one here from the Snackmasters Inc. podcast at Snackmasters Inc. I've had an IMDb account since 1999, so when I heard that there was a movie podcast with a focus on IMDb, I was sold. Great sound quality, delivers the two hosts wonderful accents. Man, accents, thriller. They love the Aussie accents. <laughs> if you dare claim Die Hard isn't classy, I'll point you directly to their whimsy on it. One thing I really like about listening to reviews that cover films that have been out for a while is it allows the reviewers to bring a level of perspective afforded by time. If you want to hear some smooth banter spoken by delightful accents regarding great films, you know what you must do. Subscribe to the show. Well said. Well said. Thank you for that one. Well said by us. Yes. By the sounds of it. (laughs) (laughs) Also, we've got from the Man Cave Chronicles at the MCC Podcast. I love how these guys are going through the top IMDb list one by one and talking about it. If you are a movie lover, this is a must listen. Yes, thank you very much for that. And thank you to all five of you for putting in your reviews. Uh, thanks everyone who reviews it. It does mean a lot to us, so we do appreciate it. And if you want to interact with us throughout the week, we're on Twitter as well, at IMDB Journey. I respond to basically everything sent our way, and it's a great way to keep up to date with us as we regularly tweet what else we've been watching throughout the week. So you can leave your thoughts there too, and we'll read them out on the podcast as well. As always, guys, we're going to be getting into full-on spoilers from the get-go for A Beautiful Mind. So if you have not seen it, please go and watch it and come back and hear what we have to say about it. So this is your spoiler warning. Or if you like, you can check out the show notes and see when we finish our discussion on A Beautiful Mind and check out what we've got to say on other movies we've watched this week. So we'll be back after our break and a promo from the Epic Film Guys with our breakdown of A Beautiful Mind. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin. We are the Epic Film Guys and we'd like just a moment of your time to talk about an extremely important event coming up this May. Last year, we hosted the live stream for The Cure, a 12-hour live stream fundraiser where we raised $2,500 for the Cancer Research Institute. 86 cents out of every dollar raised goes to research toward finding a cure. This year, we're aiming to smash that goal, and we need your help to do it. Join us from May 18th through the 20th for 30 hours of amazing live stream content from us and a whole host of amazing podcasters who will be joining us to try to reach $5,000. For more information, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. The extraordinary gift. What can I do for the Department of Defense? That set him apart. You are the best natural code breaker I have ever seen. You've done your country a great service, son. Would push his mind. Get in. Beyond its limits. So, A Beautiful Mind, released in 2001, starring Russell Crowe, Ed Harris, Jennifer Connelly, Christopher Plummer, and Paul Bettany, directed by Ron Howard. This won four Academy Awards that year, including Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress with Jennifer Connelly, Best Director for Ron Howard, and the big one again, Best Picture for that year. For A Beautiful Mind. That's right. (laughs) Name them all. Also, for his performance, Russell Crowe actually won the Best Actor Award at the Golden Globes, Screen Actors Guild, Critics' Choice, and the BAFTA, but lost at the Academy Awards 
to Denzel Washington hey. for his performance in training day. He was no match. It was actually a um, reasonably strong field that year in Best Actor. Yeah, who else was in there? Yeah, he was also up against Sean Penn for I Am Sam. Oh, yep, okay. Which I think would have been a um, an accepted pick. And, you know, lesser so Will Smith in Ali and Tom Wilkinson in In the Bedroom. Have you seen In the Bedroom? Your bedroom? I have. It's nice. You set it up quite nicely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You idiot. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, this because I was looking at this year's Academy Awards and In the Bedroom got a lot of nominations and um, I, I don't know it by name, but I saw the poster and I'm certain I've seen it. Is that the one with Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford? Or is that... No, what? that's What Lies Beneath. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, close. I think it's something different. Close, yeah. 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 Not really. <laughs> and with an estimated budget of $58 million, it received a worldwide gross of $313 million. Is, uh, I think that's quite... You were talking about No Country for All Men last week getting a huge... What was that, uh, 170? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> What's this, 320? <laughs> yes. Jesus. And this was Way to put me in my place <laughs> one week later, a beautiful mind. <laughs> And with an average of 8.2 over 715,000 ratings, it's currently sitting at number 143. Now, did you know that this film was shot in sequence in order to help Russell Crowe develop a consistently progressing manner of behavior of John Nash? Yeah, I did say that. Do you know why most films aren't shot in sequence? Honestly, I can't, honestly can't tell you. So what they do is if they have multiple scenes throughout the movie at a location... They film them all so they don't have to keep resetting oh. up the the location. So they would have, and to think like the number of scenes that go back and forth from Princeton, from his house, like it's actually like you say it, like oh yeah, they did it chronologically. It's actually adding a lot of work to it, yeah, just so um, yeah, Russell Crowe could really get into the uh, progressive behaviour of John Nash. Oh, that's interesting. Did you know who Jennifer Connelly beat out to the role of Alicia Nash? No, who was it? It was actually Brittany Murphy. Ugh. <laughs> well, imagine the movie with Brittany Murphy as the lead role there? I mean, who knows? I mean, it's a weird pick. That would have been a really odd pick. Yeah. Also, this movie was named as one of the 20 most overrated movies of all time by <laughs> Premiere. I did see that. That's a, that's a big call. That of is all a big time call. as well, not just, not just from like the 2000s. It's all time. As well. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, so in just looking at that... um. Premier's 20 most overrated movies. It actually came fifth. Do you care to guess what number one was? <laughs> one of your favourite films, which I'm not a fan of because it's incredibly overrated. Oh, geez, just going off memory here. I'm guessing The Prestige. No, Forrest Gump. Bang! <laughs> number one, most overrated movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, followed by Chicago, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and American Beauty to round out the top five. What was that uh, fourth one there? American Beauty. No, the one before that. 2001. Okay. I was going to say, because most of those are uh, Best Picture winners, hence why they would be referred to as like the most overrated. Yeah, honestly, I'm not actually... I'm not sure how much uh, merit we should put into this list. Yeah. Also on this list yeah, is... Premier? Is uh, Goodwill Hunting, Clerks, Wizard of Oz. Clerks? How dare you? How <laughs> anyway... Dare you, how dare you, Premier? It, it's there. And Field of Dreams. Love that movie. I have not seen it. If you build it, they will come, Hendo. Obviously, I didn't. Darth Vader will come. So, Dean, do you have a plot summary for us this week? Of course. It's my turn, so I came prepared. Unlike some people. A beautiful mind. You're talking about um, John here. That's hard. John, speak up, would ya? <laughs> you? Got, you've got to contribute, mate. A beautiful mind tells the true story of real-life genius mathematician John Nash, who attends Princeton to find his truly original formula. Problems arise, though, once his paranoid schizophrenia kicks in and he starts having hallucinations. Wait, wait, wait. 
hijinks ensue. <laughs> <laughs> now, continue. Sorry, I butted in there. No, nice callback. Um, he starts having hallucinations, telling him he's a government spy being hunted by the Russians. With the help of his wife, Alicia, John must learn to live his life with his mental illnesses. Very good. Very good. Most enjoyable. Maybe even more so than the movie. Oh, early shots fired. <laughs> no, no. Actually, yeah. <laughs> really? No, no. Okay, let's just let's just talk about no. it. Final thoughts, Hendo. Yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd be most willing to go to the final thoughts right now because honestly, I'll just bring it out right now. I don't have a lot to say about the film. This is actually the second time I watched this film. I did watch it uh, the first time during my initial run of the the challenge that uh, that. Oh, do you not seen it? No, the, no, no. I did. I did watch it. When we when I had to do the, the bet against yeah, you. Yeah, but you didn't see it when it came out. No, 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 no. No, I watched it, I think, what was it, last, uh, last year? No, the year before, 2016, oh something like that. Okay. Was, I do remember because it was actually at number 200 was the at that point that I watched it. How and would you remember that? Because I saw it on my letterbox. Because it was a nice round number? Yeah. And honestly, when I watched it the first time, I, ga- I, gave, it a, I gave it a four star. So, and all I wrote on there at that point was, how good is Russell Crowe? It is ridiculous that he did not get the award, which I still stand by. Yeah, I mean... What do you think? Do you, did you think he should have won that year? Yes. Yeah? I mean, I, I it's hard. Like, I sort of did think about coming on here and being like, oh, it's, you know, as you say, ridiculous. But Denzel Washington is really good in training day. I know he's been, you know, picked apart a bit for his win, but I, I think he's very good in that movie. I think I need to see it again to fully appreciate it. I've seen it once, but it was a really long time ago. Oh, it's really good. Yeah. It's not in the top 250, no, so not. you're probably not going to watch it again for a decade, but it's it's genuinely... <laughs> right, a real... because I only watch one movie a week, and it's the one we pick. How often do you watch movies that you've already seen before again these days? Actually, a lot more than I used to. I think last year I, saw, I watched like four movies that I'd rewatched prior. Mm. This year I think I've already got four. Yes. Well, it's a good thing you're knocking out such classics as Big Daddy. <laughs> Oh, this week, guys, I rewatched Billy Madison. <laughs> no, 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 we're not going to go there. Yeah, all right, let's let's get to the movie. Yeah, we're, 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 getting off, we're getting off topic. We're here. rambling here. Well, how how off topic can we get? We're talking about movies. I mean, you know, it's not like people are going to be going. What is this? I came here for a beautiful mind <laughs> review, and you're talking about Billy Madison at Trading Day. That's the opposite of a beautiful mind. <laughs> nah, okay. So let me talk about the opening scene, which is what I I usually love. I mean, what I remember from this is just the is the big, the, the the score, the music that starts this, that starts over the credits. This this super dramatic music, and you get you get this feeling that you're you're getting inspired and you're getting amped up, and and this the movie hasn't even started yet, and you're just getting into this feeling, which is something I was very interested in until we get into what is essentially this. I can't even say this movie is in thirds, really, because you know how I say there's a three act structure. I don't. I tried to go. Is there a three act structure here? And I'm like, no. Like. I initially thought, is it the time when he's at Princeton, and then it's the time when he's not at Princeton, but it's yeah, and when then, he, but before his hallucina- hallucination reveal, yeah, and then the third, the extra third. I think I think if you had to go in thirds, that would be the, yeah. the thirds. It's definitely the five years later tag is definitely the end of Act One. What did you think about? That? Hold on, just just back on the 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 music. Like since you bring it up, this score was actually nominated for best score that year as well, and. It's funny, like, I didn't think too much of it as I was watching it, but towards the end, when it really um, intensified, I, I I was a fan of it. I, th- I think it's pretty effective for yeah. this film. It is one of the best things about the film, is this score. I really enjoyed hearing that every time it came on. Huh. I did like the little bit of humour towards the start here, where John is 
he's appraising the world around him and he get, he gets the, the bits of light shining down and he matches it to the guy's tie. And he, and he gives that beautiful little insult. There could be a mathematical explanation for how bad your tie is. And he gives himself this little chuckle, this little grimace to it. Yeah, like, he's, like a, he's made a, a joke. Grin, yeah, he's a little grin to he's, himself. He's, like, he's proud yeah, of himself. Yeah. I thought that was very good. Because he's, he's so socially inept here. He doesn't realise he's just insulted this guy, this stranger, <laughs> at this point. Before this scene, though, the very first scene, beside, after the music, right? Of course. So, the second scene. <laughs> So we, we're introduced to this this Princeton classroom, and we see this professor talking about uh, how important mathematicians are. It was them who won the war, and to triumph, you need results, right? And the first time we actually see John Nash, he's in the background, almost out of focus. You almost don't even notice he's there. And the first full shot you see of John, you see you see a man looking down. He's playing with his hands. It struck me how small Russell Crowe made himself appear here. Like, he's just come off doing Gladiator. Gladiator yeah, man. Right? And he's big He's big in that movie. Like, he's not... I don't think Russell Crowe's overly tall, but he's a muscly, really muscly in Gladiator. And we see this meek little man sitting in front of us by himself in the back of the classroom. He eventually looks up and he sees this other guy who will later learn to be uh, Martin. And as soon as Martin looks back at him, he quickly lowers his eyes. He nervously looks elsewhere. And we get a close-up of him now. And we can still hear the professor talking about the importance of um, mathematics and everything they do for the world. And it's like he's not even listening. He's so disconnected from where he is. Well, this is what he. This is his whole journey at Princeton. He doesn't care about the classes. He doesn't care about all this teaching. He just needs to. He's there. He just needs to, to find, be there. He just needs to find this formula. This 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 unique formula that'll just like give him the world, basically. Yeah. So all this stuff is just jibber jabber to him. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about any of this. He want, he spends most of his time in his room sorting out this formula, and that's what happens when he doesn't go to class and he starts to fail. It, all this is nonsense to him. Yeah. No, that's right. I just thought I thought it was a decent setup, though. Yeah, and just watching Russell Crowe talk back to when he's outside here to these other guys, his hands never really stop. They're they're really expressive. And Russell Crowe said that he picked this up from when he actually met the real John Nash when he came on set. And a lot of the times when he speaks, he sort of puts his finger to his forehead and moves his hand forward, like it's sort of like pulling the information out of his head. It's really it's really mm, unusual. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, but I I did I did enjoy seeing that. So we're introduced to Charles Herman as his roommate pretty quickly here, and we hear him before we actually see him here. And Ron Howard has said that they did this uh, deliberately with all of John's hallucinations throughout the entire movie to not only give a bit of a hint that they aren't really there, but because in real life, John Nash only had audio hallucinations, i.e. he only heard the voices in his head. He didn't actually see physical people around him as hallucinations. So this was obviously changed for cinematic impact and sets up the big twist of the movie later on. But I think it was just, it's a really good point. And once you're looking through it for it throughout the movie, the girl does it a lot. Ed Harris's character, William Parcher. 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 He does it a bit as well. So it is, yeah, it's the sort of thing that once you know it's there and you're look, looking for it, it is there pretty consistently. So I did like that, um, that choice that they made there. You could always see that, Say so Charles and Marcy, uh, you could represent these three hallucinations. Is it Marcy or Macy? Marcy. Because the first time I wrote down Marcy, and then every other time I wrote down Macy. Well, that's your problem. Very feisty today, Hendo. Yeah, with these three characters, these hallucinations that John sees throughout the film, you could almost equate them to like a, an angel and a, and a devil on their on his shoulders. You've got Charles and Marcy, who are the nice hallucinations. They, they're always offering him the friendly side of their the opinion that he should be 
getting, and you've got Parcher, who's really aggressive all the time, and he's telling him, you better do this or else, you know, the government's going to take you down and, and, and stuff like that. So he's always got in both ears the good side and the bad side, the hmm. light and the dark. It's interesting. One thing that confused me a bit was, yeah, obviously you start to pick up that no one else is interacting with these people. What was the deal with Charles pushing the desk out the window later on? You see, I, I think it would be actually um, John Nash pushing it out there. Okay, but you see John just standing there looking shocked. Like this, I think this is the only only point of the film where a, one of those characters actually does something physical. Oh, no, wait, scratch that, because there is the scene where Parcher is in the car shooting at the... People are like, how do you explain that? Is that is that is that actually John driving the car himself, freaking out in the car? Yeah, I think I think that would be John driving by himself with neither car around him. Okay, and I guess maybe when the the desk does come out of the window, no one's actually out on the ground to see it happen. So that could just be in his imagination. That no, it, I, th- I think there'd be people there. No, no, in that scene, no one's on the ground watching the desk fall on the. Three people are there on the ground. Are they? Yeah, and because every time. There's so many times when you know that these people aren't really there and you see the reactions from the people around. And like even at the bar that we get to later, when John is playing pool, Martin walks up and says, Who's winning, you or you? And John looks over and you see Charles at the Duke's box and he sort of waves and walks off. <laughs> and I, just, I saw that, I was like, yeah, that, that's right. Because whether Charles is there or not, like he's playing by himself. So he's playing for Charles. Yeah, he's uh... taking all of Charles's shots as well. Oh, jeez. But I think Charles sort of, and to a lesser extent, oh, maybe not to a lesser extent, but I think Charles really does represent a part of John that he can't be, that he isn't, that he sort of, maybe not longs for, but it's a part of his personality that he doesn't have. So, we see Charles, and he's he's really everything John is not. He doesn't like math. He says it's boring. He's, he's, he's there to study English. Yeah, he's he's a big drinker. He always wants to eat, and we hear yeah. that... You know, John Nash is, you know, doesn't eat. Like, when was the last time you ate, John? And then later on, John asks the kid at the end of the movie who comes up to him to look at his um his problem. The first thing he does is he says to this kid, when was the last time you ate? You know, he sort of takes that on, uh, that part of him that um that he doesn't have. So, you know, like, Char- Charles is obviously so relaxed, so social, so likable, and John is just the stark opposite of that. So, I think, yeah, Charles is a is a good character there. How's the game he plays with Martin when is it? What is that game? Othello. Go. It's called Go. Uh, okay. Yeah. I like. Is this the only spat of aggression that he has when he loses this game and he flips the lid and storms off? Is there any other point in the film where he he goes absolutely crazy? Who, John? Yeah. Is there any other point where he gets in this he gets film this that angry, John goes he gets, crazy? He gets, Are you serious? Gets this? Have ang- you watched this film? No. He's fucking crazy the whole time. When he gets this angry and aggressive. Because overall, he is a calm kind of person who has schizophrenia, but he's not... There is the point where he he pushes Alicia down with the baby, but that's because he's protecting her from, from Parcha. Yeah, that's not anger. Yeah, so I think this is the only time in the movie when he's actively angry and annoyed and sprays all the bits everywhere and storms off, falling over as well. Yeah, could be. Did you know there was actually a deleted scene? No. There was a deleted scene, believe it or not. No, I, I didn't know that. No, it was actually about how he... He basically invented the the board game Hex. He co-invented it with uh, someone else. And they actually filmed that scene, but they kept it out. It was because Othello, Go, is, to him, flawed. Because the person who goes first should always win. So he developed this game Hex, where... That he can always win. Yeah, if he goes first, he always wins. (laughs) Genius. Yeah, we see this scene here. um, Judd Hirsch's professor is telling John Nash that he's... 
you know, basically he hasn't done anything to warrant staying at Princeton and there's no placement for him coming up. And we see this sort of look inside this this room where they're all having... Like a fancy lunch room. Yeah, like a high tea room, mm. you know. And all these guys are giving this guy the pens. And he says it's a sign of respect and it shows accomplishment. What did you think of that? I thought it was nice. I thought it's like a lifetime achievement award in this in this area of expertise. When you and obviously when you see that, you you just know automatically. Yeah, he's going to get that. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Did you know as soon as you saw that? Yeah, this is where it's okay, going to end up. This is where it'll end up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is a true story. There's not going to show him looking at that like wanting yeah. that, and he's not going to get it. Yeah. Like. What's odd? You say it's a true story. This never happened. There is no, know, there they, is no placing of the so pens. They're, they're going to set it up so that he's definitely going to be getting this in the future. Yeah. So, here we go. You talk about him never being angry, other than that one scene. After the professor tells him he's not doing very well, he goes into his room and gets really angry and smashes his head against the glass and then gets in a fight with Charles. Himself. Yes. That doesn't make him less angry. Fight club style. Yes. No, nah, okay. Fair enough. So, he gets angry twice. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so then we get to, yeah, one of the most pivotal scenes in the movies for, uh, definitely for the character of John, uh, where we're at the bar and the blonde woman walks in. I love the way that this was filmed, where he's he's explaining to these people, and the problem with a movie like this is, it is genius level mathematics that they have to convey to a non-mathematical um, aware audience. Yeah, and can I, I think- can I say that this scene is, to me, it was the only scene that they actually did that properly. I feel like every other time they're talking about mathematics and equations and that, I had no idea what they were talking about. This scene where he dumbs, dumbs it down for everyone, like, if we ignore the blonde and we, sc- and we scatter off and pick the other four off, you know, this huh. works perfect. But every other part where you're talking about theorems and quantifying and all this stuff, I was so lost. Like, I mean, like, I, I didn't understand it either, obviously. Were you intrigued? Were you like, oh, this is interesting? No, it's more just showing, like, how how intelligent he is, I guess, but it's not... We know he's intelligent. We know what's going on, but they do it a lot. And I never, I never had I a problem like, with it, ever. That's where I feel like this film falters for me, is because there's a lot driven into this, yet it becomes repetitive and it gets rather annoying and boring at times. It's when you get into the hallucinations and the, and the extreme schizophrenia. Basically, when he meets Alicia onwards is when the movie starts to get a little better. But I feel like this first third, when he's at Princeton, there's only a couple of small scenes here and there that I actually enjoyed, while the rest of them are like, all right, come on, let's get into it, let's move on, I want to see what's going on. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, d- I didn't have that at all. I, was, I wasn't bored in this movie. But I love, I love seeing the joy on John's face here. He's so happy and he's giddy and... You know, he knows he's going to get the placement he wants, and he celebrates. And I, I just think that was a really nice, uh, nice time for him. And then we cut to the Pentagon five years later. Yeah, what do you think about how this is a movie based off math, and that yet they have to say they do have the year that comes up, but they have to explain to us how many years have gone past. The title at the start did say nineteen whatever, and then they come with this is nineteen whatever. It's five years, in case you weren't paying attention. Because uh, you're wrong. Because you're not accounting for the time he spent at Princeton, are you? So when it when it starts when it starts it's 1947. Okay, now if you if you add five years to that, it's not 1953, is it? I mean, I know this isn't quite genius level mathematics, but I'm sure you can work that one out. How many days are there in a year? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Pentagon. That's As, right. I like. Well, it. What did you think about the the tie in there? It's five years later. A Pentagon, five sides. 
Boom. Well, I did not even pick up on that, Hendo. Oh, jeez. I saw it. Like, the, the light the wow. light started shining. The Pentagon shape came up. My, <laughs> my face. On your face. On my face. <laughs> You're looking in a mirror. <laughs> okay. So, John Nash. Now, Dr. John Nash is approached by these people at the Pentagon to help solve this Russian code and they've they've do- already done all this work on it. Do you want to see our preliminary findings? You don't need all that this- shit. Well, no, nah, he just stands there. And he's been there for a long time. Yeah, there's this great like he sta- he's st- his head's in the forefront, and you see in the background these guys they slowly getting coffee, sitting down, getting relaxed. They're losing their sort of military. You can clearly see how much time has passed. They are yeah. so over it. Like, come on, he hasn't moved yet, yeah, and he, and he doesn't move. His face just stays there. Yeah, and the way the way it lights up these numbers and they stick out to him. That's actually um, how these code breakers in real life have described. You know, like how how they can break code to Ron Howard, the director, obviously, and he 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 thought that by doing this sort of lighting up, focusing, bringing the numbers out, that would that's kind of realistic. Like I know we see it; it's a movie, and obviously that's not really happening. But from what, from yeah, but what- you can you can tell that like that's how that's how it would be to people who are this genius, like that they can basically just look at it and they can see what see what the problem is, see where the where the issue lies, see what they need to be focusing on, and it would. Just come out to them. Mm. Everything else would be nothing to them, so it would just be blurred out. Yeah, that's it's good. But the most important part of this is he looks up and sees Ed Harris's character, William Parcher. Big brother. Big brother. Now, did this remind you of any other Ed Harris role? Kind of reminded me of the Truman Show. Little bit. Yep. <laughs> Man, Ed Harris, he's he's so good. He's so got this this role this. This hard-ass sort of military man down pat, doesn't he? Well, just go back to The Rock. Yeah, oh, he's good in The Rock. But again, this is one of those things where John looks up, who's Big Brother? The other no people, one answers him. They ignore they him. Yeah. yeah. All so. these little cues, like these little hints, are for the if you see it for the first time, that they're just hinting at you. Also, one other thing I notice is there's a shot where you see Marcy running through like some grass chasing birds, but the birds don't move. They don't fly away. They, don't, like, they act as if she's not even there. There's another little one. Yeah, it's a great little detail there. Yeah, I did pick up on that. And that's something that you I think you don't pick up on the first time, you know? And you watch it again, you're like, oh, that's, it's clever. All these little hints, they're very clever. What did you think going... Is this your second time you watched it? Could be third, but we'll go with two. How did you treat it differently to the first time you watched it when you didn't know that this this twist or this this is what it was? Knowing from the start that this, these people aren't real and it's hallucinations, how did it... Did it detract from what you're watching... No, so I would say for the most part it added to it because you get this other layer to it, okay? So you're watching this and you're trying to look for these hints. You're trying to see how people around them are reacting, how the environment around is reacting to these people. You're trying to see how it all fits in. And I like that sort of um, sort of mystery, that puzzle putting together. Now, obviously, you lose the impact of the, the twist for when it happens, but I think, and we'll get to that later, but I think that scene is so strong anyway you still really enjoy it. So, what did you think? I felt like it, it lowered for me this time with this one. Knowing it wasn't real? Oh, I knew it, was, it, I knew, I knew it wasn't real halfway through the film the first time. Well, yeah. But knowing what was coming up in this film the second time and knowing that he, these people aren't real, it, it kind of it, it, it took that away from the film. And I felt like when I watched it the first time, that was a big part of the film when I watched it. So, f- to take that away, watching it a second time, I feel like this is like the perfect... One like perfect movie to watch once. I I was so high on this film when I watched it the first time. Coming off it a second time, I'm like ah, oh, it like it really detracted from my initial watch. 
not many movies that are like that, but I feel like the second time around knowing what it was about, like, and there are other films where watching it on a second time makes it even better, or somewhere there it needs to be watched again, like Memento, Memento. The Usual Suspects, Sixth Sense, like all those films, mm. like, and they work better like that. But I felt I just with this with this film, I just it felt like it was detracting from my first watch. Unfortunately, well, that's so weird because I feel like it's the same thing as all those movies you've mentioned. No, where- but I feel like they did it better. I feel like all those films had it much better. I just I don't know what it was about this film. I was maybe maybe it was the the lack of anything in the first third. And I'm like, okay, let's get to it. And then when I got to, it, I'm like, oh, it's really yeah, not you as need, you need set up as I thought of these it was. people. You need to see where someone's come from to sort of appreciate where they are. Well, in saying that, the first thing you see of John Nash is he's starting at Princeton. You don't get anything about him before that. He just comes straight into Princeton, and he's this mathematical genius. Are you genius. complaining about that? No, but you're saying that you need to um, you need to get to know these people. Well, you don't need to know them from birth. Why not? You're not Look making at all those any other biopics. Most 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 biopics start with them from birth as childhood. Name so, three. Uh, I can't name three biopics just <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, Ali <laughs> in the bedroom. <laughs> 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 Training day. He's he's a real person, wasn't there he? There you go. Um, <laughs> okay, so we we go back to Nash at the Wheeler Defense Labs. He's talking with his, uh, I guess, friends Saul and Bender. Saul Evan Goldberg wasn't he in a million movies like around the two thousand mark? The only things that I honestly can remember him from was Friends. He's Eddie, the roommate. Okay, in and in a fantastic. Extra role there. He's in like a couple of episodes in season two, uh, and he just steals every episode he's in those those three or four episodes. He was. I remember him also from Entourage as well. As as the um, he was a coke uh, head producer who lost all his money. Some shit. I honestly can't remember any other films he's in from this except, except this film. Why don't you hit us with some trivia, Dean, on what other films he's been in around that area, circa two thousand and one? Why don't you tell us right now, Dean? Have a think about it. Go on, Dean. All the audience is waiting here. You hit, hit us up with the knowledge. Give us that Evan Goldberg knowledge you're, you're so well invested in. <laughs> oh my god, it's Adam Goldberg. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I knew that. I was just testing you. There you um, Oh, it was obviously... Sorry about that. I just had to duck out for a sec, listeners. <laughs> um, it was obviously in Saving Private Ryan. Very memorable role. He was, um, of course, in the Babe sequel. <laughs> He was also in. All right, so it appears oh, I can, that he, I can hear those crickets coming. It appears that he actually wasn't in too many films. I don't know. I, I don't know why I remember him so much. Yeah, his filmography is not that impressive. Okay. Oh, hang on. Are you are you getting it? There's there's another actor who is like so similar to him. That, oh. Is it Evan Goldberg? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Look at this guy's filmography. <laughs> they must. This Evan Goldberg. He must have been. Um, in oh, keeping yeah. with the theme of hallucinations and schizophrenia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, going back to it. So, he's talking with Saul and Bender, and he's complaining to them that he's only been to the Pentagon twice in four years. And they're like, well, we haven't been at all. At least you get to go sometimes. And it really shows how unimportant he's feeling. He's feeling like his talent, this beautiful talent of his, is wasted. Even when he sees on the cover of the Forbes magazine how he has to share it with three other different people, he's outraged. Like, what? Yeah. Why, why can't it just be me? Exactly. And this, obviously, is the genesis for uh, William Preacher, who's you know, is represents everything he wants there. 
You know, so when he's at Princeton, he's got no friends, he's got no life, he's got nothing to do, and he meets this guy who can open up this other world for him. He takes him out to bars and he meets people. Then he goes to the defense lab and he feels so wasted. So all of a sudden, there's this guy here who's this top secret government agent who basically turns him into a spy and makes him feel like he's saving the world. Like, you can really see why these people are, are coming to him when they do. Yeah, no, that's some good thoughts there, Dean. They're, they're really good. So, why don't we talk about the introduction to Alicia here? Yes, let's, Alicia. What I like about Alicia and her character and how they set her up with John is that she's she's very similar to him in that she she likes his quirks and his bluntness, I guess. Like, you remember back in the Princeton part when uh, he's talking to that, that girl at the bar and yeah, he says... He wants to exchange fluid. I don't exactly know what I'm required to say in order for you to have intercourse with me. But could we assume that I said all that? I mean, essentially, we're talking about fluid exchange, right? So could we just go straight to the sex? And he cops a slap to the face. Oh, that was sweet. Have a nice night, asshole. <laughs> he doesn't really learn from his mistake. Well, he does. Well, what did... He when... does, because he's he's sitting on the, on the, uh, the sort of creek bed with her, and she says, oh, you're so quiet. And he says... I've had you attractive. Your aggressive moves towards me indicate that you feel the same way. But still, ritual requires we continue with the number of platonic activities before we have sex. I'm proceeding with those activities. But in point of actual fact, all I really want to do is have intercourse with you as soon as possible. You're going to slap me now. So that shows that he has learned, because if he hadn't learned, he would have just said what he was thinking. But it's clearly he's putting so much effort now into not saying what he's thinking, because he knows that it's going to get a bad result. He's still being very blunt and direct in only his when, ways. Only when told he can be. <laughs> okay. That, all right. He's learned a little bit then. All right. But he's still, I, he's still being the blunt and direct that he was at the start, except now he's getting acknowledged that he, he's allowed to. Yeah. And of course, she accepts this and she likes this. Well, I think, so good once, win. I think once you tell someone, try me, be as direct as you want, I, it's sort of hard to be like, oh, God, no, stop. That's too direct. He gives it a go, and then he does say to her, are you going to slap me now? He just thinks it's going to happen again. So we'll jump forward a little bit, and we see John going to meet Alicia at dinner, and we learn that he's obviously very late, and it's her birthday, and she's obviously really unhappy with him. So his reaction is to... Try and organise their marriage. In the most academic, non-romantic way possible. Yeah, I wonder how true to life this would be. Because, I mean, I mean, you said it before, she's actually pretty similar to him, mm. which I never really thought about. But I think you'd have to be to accept a proposal like this. Like, she knows at this point who he is and what, what her life's going to be like with him. And she's not just okay with it, she's happy with it. Yeah, well, when she says... Sorry, just give me a moment to um, redefine my girlish notions of romance. Yeah, it really shows that um, she's all in with him. Yeah, you know, like, and I've really, I've really enjoyed the way she explained, sort of, sort of um, explained to John, like, how big is the universe? Infinite. How do you know? I know because all the data indicates it's infinite. But it hasn't been proven yet. No, you haven't seen it. No. How do you know for sure? I don't, I just believe it. Mm. It's the same with love, I guess. 
I thought that was a really fantastic analogy there. Yeah, I really, and also just because it it keeps them like similar and together, like they're they're bonding through that. Like she accepts how he is, and she uses that through the marriage proposal as well to answer his question. Rather than saying yes, yes, lovey, lovey, dovey, yeah, she answers him back with another philosophical question. Yeah, she talks to him in his language. Yeah, and she relates to him in a way that he'll understand. What did you think about their, the end of their first date when he's doing the constellations? When he's saying, "Pick a an object, and I'll yeah. I'll read it in and the stars." And she picks an umbrella. What did you think of that? I didn't think too much of it at that point, but I did like that when he's an old man, he's walking around with an, an umbrella, yeah. and it's not raining. Callback. And I just thought I I did think that was a callback because I feel like he, you know you can see he's sentimental. He's very sentimental with the um, handkerchief that she gives him. Yep. And I thought seeing him later with the walking around with the umbrella, I thought was a good a good callback to that. Oh, nice. What about the octopus? Yep, you got me there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's alright. I didn't have anything to say about the octopus either. What do you think of it? I just said I have nothing to say about the octopus. Well, you brought it up. I wanted to what see did what you think you... of the stars? Because I, to... I thought nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get. I wanted to know that you had the same opinion about the octopus as me. The octopus was a weird choice. Yeah. Yeah, so we sort of get a few scenes here that build up to the twist. We get, as we mentioned before, we have this big car chase with uh, Preacher and some mysterious people behind him, um, which leads into him going home. He slams the door. He won't speak to her. He won't open up to her, which obviously must be so hard for a wife. Not just a wife, but a newlywed who's also, we find out, pregnant. Yep. And he just, he won't communicate with her. He won't tell her what's happened. And we see, we see at the university, John's yelling down the hall at Parcher. And Saul sees him yelling at no one. And there's sort of an odd look like, you, you're right. But you see how Parcher walks out the door. Yeah. And just as the door shuts, he pops his head out. Yeah. Another little, another little hint there of what's going to come up. Yeah, and Alice Alice knows something's really wrong at this point, and we get the, the camera linger on the shot of the phone, and then boom, in walks Christopher Plummer, who I had no recollection was in this movie. I thought it was Kevin Spacey. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, I, Man, that joke is going to be used for years and years to come. I mean, how many, how many, how many Christopher Plummer movies are we going to talk about? I, was gonna, well, I thought you were going to say, how many Christopher Plummer movies have I seen? And honestly, I think this is the only one. And I didn't even know he was in it. I, can't, I honestly can't think of any movies that he's in. Does he have any, like... The Force Awakens? What, am I going to think of him in that film? You know what his big film is? His biggest film? Baby Driver? Uh, Sound of Music. Ah, okay. So, I have not seen The Sound what? of Music. What? Oh, don't give me the what like you didn't know that. You haven't seen <laughs> The Sound of Music? What? <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to do a Tim Allen there? Are No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I promise, guys, we haven't been drinking or anything. No, this is this is how we get when Hendo gets a bit bored. Yeah. Um, we, we laugh, we jest, we have fun. We jest. And it's weird because at this point, we kind of, I mean, are we thinking that these are the Russians? Yeah, did you? Yeah, when he's up on the on the, the stage, the stage and, talking, and, and these people are walking in, I'm like, oh, are they these, real? Like, yeah, they're, they're they're real. Like an odd choice to even like, the second time I watched it recently, I I, I was still thinking, oh, yeah, what, I, what's going on? Yeah, here? I watched it thinking they were hallucinations. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, but in actual fact, they were real. And like, let's say you need to, you need, you know, you're a doctor, you're a psychiatrist, you get called and say, oh, you need to take this guy in. Wouldn't you wait till he finishes? Like he's a paranoid schizophrenic. And you walk, get this group of men in suits just to walk the front in. For just wait. Yeah. Just wait. <laughs> Did you uh, notice a little cameo in the background here at a certain point? No, I didn't. 
Yes, you did. No, I, I, I read about it after. I actually did uh, not okay. notice I actually, it. Did you notice I, it? I actually noticed it. How does she look? Like Bryce Dallas Howard. Oh, is she super young? Yeah, but she looks like her still. Like it's, it's ve- You can easily tell it's her. Oh, never, I didn't pick up She's on it. She's in the front of the crowd as the car drives off, and I'm like, I saw him like, there she is. And I didn't even... I, the thing is, I didn't even pick up Ron Howard, Bryce Dallas Howard. I thought I just thought, oh, there she is as a young actress, as an extra. <laughs> yeah, and there's a great this great first scene at the psychiatric hospital where he's he's sort of cuffed to this wheelchair, his hands and legs are bound, and he falls over and he sees Charles sitting in the corner. And his first thought is, Oh God, I've involved him. The Russians have got him too. I'm so sorry. And then it sort of dawns on him, hang on. This guy's ratted me out. Yeah. And you get him being characteristically angry, as he often does. <laughs> as we're learning. Gradually here. Uh, um, and I, I just thought that was really good, because it sort of shows this range of emotions that he's going through. He thinks that... Oh, what's his name? Dr. Rosen is a Russian spy. It's all, it's all very... It's very clever. But then this is really the first time where he's looking in the corner. He's like, Charles, Charles. And the doctor looks over and says... Who are you talking to? And it's at that point, I think, is when it's the twist is legitimised there. Yeah. You can start to see his his schizophrenia and that go deep and harder here when he starts prying at his wrist to pull out the codes that they inject that he injected into him like Yeah, and you sort of get this code red, Dr. Rosen, co- yeah. code red, and you're like, fuck and then I thought he was still like you see him like trying to hang himself. Yeah, me too. And yeah. then I'm like, Oh, he's not trying to hang himself, he's slit his wrists. I'm like, fuck, I don't remember him trying to kill himself. And then, no, he's just like, oh, I can't find the implant. So, we get this really important scene between Rose, Dr. Rose and Alice, where he's explaining to her that she's schizophrenic and that Charles doesn't exist. And she's like, oh, no, 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 that's not possible. Charles has been his best friend since Princeton. Never met him, though. Have you met him? Have you seen a photo? Yeah. Have you like? And these questions, and you just see the sort of horror begin to dawn on a- Alicia. I called her Alice before. You know, she realises that, what the doctor is saying is correct and that her husband actually is, you know, full-on crazy. And she's seeing him do these um, electroshock therapy things. Oh, which, that scene looks brutal. Yeah, like it's... I've seen this in a few movies, most notably Clockwork Orange or... Oh, not Clockwork Orange. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Thank Nest. Thank you, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Dead. Nest or um, Requiem for a Dream. Yep. Like it's, they don't it, look as bad as here. Oh, maybe well, okay. Maybe maybe once a dream. No, oh no. Wait, I was going to say Cuckoo's Nest. I think Cuckoo's oh. Nest is equivalent to this. Well, Requiem for a Dream. They do the the things in the side of her head. Yeah. And she just she just like tenses up. Whereas oh, in a beautiful no. mind and Cuckoo's Nest, it's it, much they're, they're, more like, crazy shaking all over the place. Uh, Requiem for a Dream does it worst. I disagree. All right, Twitter poll. <laughs> so Alice forces her way into John's office and she sees the newspapers all over the walls and all the lines connecting him, the writing and drawing and notes all over them. And she's like, how have you guys not, not said anything? And they're just like, oh, he's, he's always been a bit weird. <laughs> not- I was like, fucking hell, guys. <laughs> Look at it. Look around you. <laughs> yeah, they say he's been agitated lately. It's like, man, this is this is a crazy person. So then we sort of get we sort of get a lot of um, Alicia's. Pretty sure I called her Alice again before. We get a lot of Alicia's uh, sort of point of view now that John's in the hospital. Yeah, it becomes a she becomes a lot more of a focus of the film. Oh now. yeah, massively, massively. What did you think of Jennifer Connelly's performance in this film? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I actually I actually didn't realize she won an Oscar for it when I watched it. It's the only time she's ever been nominated too. Yes, yeah, good got a good strike rate. It's surprising she didn't get nominated for. Don't uh, say it. 
Labyrinth. Okay, I was going <laughs> to say Once Upon a Time in America. No, Labyrinth. <laughs> My God. Toby. Have you seen any any of the other films that the other actresses were nominated for that year? Because I haven't. Yeah, so there was Kate Winslet in Iris. Marissa, haven't seen it. Marissa Tomei in in, in 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 the bedroom. In the bedroom. I hear that's quite good. <laughs> and also Helen Mirren and Maggie Smith in Gosford Park. I have seen Gosford Park. What do you think of that? Do they deserve the acting? Yeah, I don't remember it um, at all. So yeah, I have no idea. While we're talking about the Oscars, what what, do you th- what about Ron Howard as Best Director for that year against Peter Jackson for Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Robert Altman for Gosford Park, Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down, and David Lynch for Mulholland Drive? Yeah, I mean, the I think Peter Jackson probably is most deserving, but they sort of saved up all the Lord of the Rings Oscars yeah. for the last one, which I don't mind at all. Black Hawk Down, eh, take it or leave it. Gosford Park, I don't really remember. And what was the other one? Mulholland Drive, that's a very... Very ambitious movie. I probably would have enjoyed it if he'd got the Oscar. I don't think he, he was probably ever really a shot, though. Actually, when I was watching some of these Oscar videos, it, you know how they'd come, oh, well, check this one out. I'm like, all right, I'll check this one out. And I watched Daniel Day-Lewis win for Lincoln. Yep. And Joaquin Phoenix was nominated for The Master in that. And they cut to him, like, Joaquin Phoenix for The Master. He just, he has this, I don't give a fuck look. He's like... Is that when he was preparing for that? I don't document? know. Did he have a huge beard? No, not yet. It was like it was a it was a small beard. Like it was just like these. Uh, okay. But he's just like this. He just gave like this fuck off. Like <laughs> the camera. And I looked at the comments. Everyone's like, "Wow, what if Phoenix does not give a fuck?" <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, my favorite Jennifer Connelly scene in this movie is where um, they struggle to where John struggles perform, perform in the bedroom. Another callback. Oh, and why don't we just review that film? <laughs> oh. And we can go do it in my bedroom as well. Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I did not mean that. Anyway, so she goes into the bathroom and she drinks as a drink and then she throws a glass at the thing and it shatters everywhere and she breaks down here. And I thought she did a really, really good job here. Yeah, no, it was very powerful. Very powerful. I also like it's much more subtle act- acting here from her, but the scene where she goes to see him after it's been a bit of time and she knows... Yeah, she knows everything's in his head and everything, and she goes to see him, and he says, he seems really positive, and he says to her, everything's going to be okay, and you can see, like, this almost relief sort of wash over a bit, and she's really happy, and then John says, Everything's going to be alright. Just have to talk quietly. They may be listening. There may be microphones. Do you remember this scene at all? I remember that. She's and then she brings out all the packages and shows him. And then he walks off. It's that same. Yeah, it didn't really stand out to me. I do remember it now that you mention it. Yeah, no, I just I just really liked um her performance there, to be honest. I thought it was it was uh yeah, subtle. Yeah, and then we get more discussion about the uh mental illnesses and we get the doctor talking about how the nightmare of schizophrenia is not knowing what's true. Imagine if you had suddenly learned that the people, the places the moments most important to you were not gone, not dead, but worse. They've never been. What kind of hell would that be? And that that really hit home for me. Like you sort of think, like not knowing what's real and what's not is it's scary. Like it would be really scary for someone. And I thought they really played it really well towards the very end of the film when he's an old man and this uh, guy from the Nobel Peace Prize comes up to him and says, I want to speak to you. And he pulls one of his students aside and says, is this man really here? 
It's like he's a, he's got to the point where he's accepted it, and it's his understanding of what his issue is. Like he's not fearful of this anymore at that. point. No, exactly right. Because he's yeah, he's learnt to deal with it, I suppose. But he does it with some humor as well. Yeah, yeah. and that's the thing. He does have a sense of humor about it. That he has a sense of humor about the illness in general. Like when when Saul comes to visit him after the first session of treatment, like first session he has the insulin session, and he says, "You met Harvey." I, uh, <laughs> John, there's something. Relax, it's okay. There's no point in being nuts if you can't have a little fun. Jesus Christ, John. <laughs> you know, I should have known. And he gives, and again, going back to the tie joke, he gives himself a little chuckle here. He's laughing at it. And I thought that was a bit of humor in there, too. And and Russell Crowe's performance in that scene and in, and in general, the gradual decline of his schizophrenia along the way. I'm, I'm, throwing it out there Russell Crowe is the best thing about this movie and his performance outshines everything about this movie yeah and I think it has to yeah. like this movie rests on his shoulders especially if it, most, if he's in not most com- biopics in biopics in general it really go, it really boils down to the performance of the person they're trying to portray here I really feel that you can also say yes good direction and music and supporting act- actors and actresses and that but when you come can you get down to it the person who is acting as the person there, the story is about, needs to be the central focus here. Were well, you trying to contradict me? Are you trying to find a different, <laughs> something different that would undermine my opinion? Classic all Dean. <laughs> all I'm trying to do is find a movie, a biopic. The where fact that you have to search and find a movie answers my question. I just no, like wrecked. No, because. You're taking this all wrong. I'm not doing it to try and disagree with you. I just think that's yes, a real. I really, always do. I just think that's a really interesting point you made there, and one I hadn't thought about. Where if you've got a biopic, like the performance has to be spot on, and if it's not, then you're in strife. So, so we start to see what life is like for Alicia and John living together, and he takes out the trash and something so small, where she hears him talking outside, and she just freaks out. And understandably so. And she's really scared. And he comes in and she's like, oh, who are you talking to? He says, oh, the garbage man. Oh, the garbage man don't come at night. I guess here they do. And you can tell she she doesn't believe him. And I think as an audience, you don't believe him. But you can see that he sees that she doesn't believe him and it, can't, and it hurts him. Yeah, but I think, I think the reaction to it when they realize when she sees that there was someone out there and they laugh about it, I think that really is a testament to how they've been able to live their lives together so so long. Like, Because they obviously, I mean, in the movie, they stay married until the yeah. end of the movie where they're elderly, okay? And I think that the fact that they laugh about this where it could have gone the other way, where he could have... She, she could have got to the point where she couldn't handle it anymore and she had to leave. Yeah, or he could have got really upset and really sensitive that his wife doesn't trust him. Yep. I just think I think that was really important to make light of the situation there for the uh, relationship. So we see now that he hasn't been taking his meds when we get to the point where he can't perform in the bedroom and he can't interact with his wife and he just has to stop taking these meds. And Parcher comes back. Mm. And you can see it, you can see it straight away. As soon as you see that he hasn't been taking the meds, it snap cuts to sound outside and he sees this, this military guy run off and he follows him out into the woods and... All of a sudden, there's Parcher with all these military people. You've got to get back to work. And se- and sets up this elaborate code-breaking deal in his, in his shed. Yeah. And I'm curious if there was anyone out there who was thinking, is this real? At this point in the movie? Yeah. Oh, God, no. Well... What, you think... You no, think- no, definitely not. But... You think there was someone out there watching there it? There could going- have very well been. 
there could have been. What I did love about this scene is how relieved John is. He accepts it so easily that these people are real. Because at first, obviously, he's like, nah, you're not real, you're not real. But Parcher offers up this bullshit explanation and he accepts it so easily because he wants to believe it. Like, these people are here for a reason. He needs these people in his life to make himself feel good, feel important, and feel, you know, needed in the world. So, when he sees him again and he's like, oh, you know, they they were lying to me. Parcher's real. What I'm doing is important. It's just, it's really good to see how happy he was there. Okay, let's talk about the scene where it starts off with John saying he'll draw the baby's bath. Because this is my... Excellent! Oh, okay. Um, play it again. Excellent! <laughs> <laughs> yep, my favourite scene too. This whole thing is outstanding. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's funny because when I was watching this movie, it got... Before this point, there like <laughs> there was no point that I would have said was a favourite scene. So Alice is out. Oh, Alicia is outside, and she her real name in real life is Alice. That's why it's Alice and John Nat. Alicia hears the radio sounds outside, which I find real odd. Yeah, that was that was random. Like she is hearing these like radio waves, these wavelengths, and they don't exist. Which is that a is that an, an error? I don't know. I don't understand. Because when that. she gets into the cabin, all there is, like it's an old rundown cabin covered head to toe in newspaper articles, which is another great reveal. Like, obviously, you know it's like that, but seeing it, well, after you It's much you've worse ju- than the, yeah. the, the school. Yeah. So it, it is, it is really good. But yeah, I don't get why she heard the uh, radio sounds. Listeners out there, if you know what those radio sounds were, please let us know because yeah, uh, yeah a bit confused about that one. Bit baffling. But anyway. So, she sees it and then she races back, realizing that, you know, John's still very sick and he's watching the baby. Yeah, he's running a bath. And she runs upstairs and he's like, don't worry, Charles is watching the baby. But you also get this intercut. Once she sees the shit in the shed, it cuts back to the baby in the bath and the water running and yeah. and you're like, oh, oh. Like, when I saw it the first time, I'm like, oh, no. Like... This could, this could very yeah. easily go this way. Yeah. And it's very nerve-wracking. Even the second time, it's it's very tenacious. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. <laughs> but I love, I love the line here where they're all down. Um, you've got Parcher, Charles, you've got Alicia. And he's, he's saying, nah, the reason you can't see him, he's wearing a cloaking device yeah. now. It's like, wow. Like, if he's believing this now, like, that really... It really says what sort of level of um, delusion he's living with. And again, this uh, Russell Crowe performance, just the way he's acting now, is he's up and down, he's all over the joint. I think this at this point here is his best work in this film. Obviously, it's the best scene in the film, so it would go hand in hand. Yeah, but yeah, when they get downstairs and you see Parcher's there and he's saying, they're, you know, they're he's holding you back. He's going to shoot them. And this is, this, is the, this is the evil part of his mind. Just to even have that there, I feel like it's, it's a bit crazy. And... He does protect them. He tries to save them from this nothing. Yeah. Pushes them down. Yeah. Pushes the baby over. And she's obviously freaked out and scared, as you would be. Yeah. And at this point, Charles just shows up out of nowhere for him. And it, I know he gets to the point where he realizes that Marcy hasn't aged, but don't you think just Charles randomly showing up would be the, the linchpin? Go, hmm, this is a little weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It should be. And so she packs, she gets up and heads out the door, jumps in the car. And you see here that where this is where John realizes that this is all illusions and hallucinations when he realizes that Marcy hasn't aged in over three years. So that's a good pickup from him. A little smart ass. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, he, he jumps out in front of the car and stops her and... Yeah, and sort of accept and lets her know that he yeah. actually believes it. Yeah, which, this, this whole scene is, is fantastic. It's the best one of the film. Yeah, no, it is, it is a great scene. So then we get this sort of uh, this choice that Alicia needs to make here where they've got uh, Dr. Rosen downstairs waiting in the car to take John away. And John's saying, I'm not going. No. Um, you can go take the kid, leave me. That's okay, but I, I can't go to this hospital. And she's saying like, oh, I, I've got commi- committed papers. Is that what they call it? Commitment papers. Commitment papers. And she says, oh, I could sign them. And he says, oh, like, will you? And she walks downstairs and you're sort of wondering what the decision is. And she comes back up and she obviously loves him very you much. You hear the car drive off. So you're like, and he, he, you see that little bit of deflation from him like, oh, she's gone. She did actually leave. But no, she comes back upstairs. So we go to two months later. John's back at Princeton and he's, he's seeing his old sort of nemesis, Martin, who explains who's now the president yep. of Princeton. And again, like he sees, uh, Martin sees John walk in and says, Jesus Christ. And John replies with a joke. I, uh, I don't have that one. My savior complex takes on a completely different form. And Charles bursts in almost immediately. And John sort of starts banging the newspaper down, acting like a, you know, a schizophrenic person. And he's like, oh, can we just pretend that didn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> which, which, you know, which is good. But then, you know, like Martin, he takes him on board. He's like, yeah, all right, we'll give you a go. You know, will you be needing an office? And next thing you cut to is him screaming at no one. In the in the thing, and he's got this this group of people like circling him. Just it's just terrible. Yeah, he's got Parcher in his ear, just relentless. But he decides here that he's going to just start ignoring them. This is the best the best case for him to just start ignoring them. And obviously, that would be super hard for him to start ignoring Charles and Marcy because he has to reject this guy who he thought he was his best friend for these years and years of his life. Yeah, he was, says it was, a, it was a it was a support system for. Says him. he really misses talking to yeah. him, which you understand. He was a, he. Charles was his friend when no one else was yeah. during his school years. Yeah, and obviously he has to refuse to talk to Marcy as well, who opens up and starts to wants hugs along the yeah, way and that, which yeah. would be devastating as well. But the moments that you see here, they really serve this sort of symbolic purpose, and that's to drive home just how strong John has to be to get better. Here, you can see his resilience against this this disease that he has and how he has to fight it. Mm. And obviously, it's easier for John to want to ignore Parcher, of course, since he's kind of terrifying. However, because John's talents and work are related to recognizing and analyzing the codes, the hallucinations featuring Parcher and his secret missions uh, are pretty hard for John to resist. So I, I imagine it'd be uh, just as hard to resist him as it is with Charles and Marcy along the way too. Yeah, absolutely. And it says in one of the latest scenes that he stays away from all code breaking yeah. and all that type of mathematics and not in the, the crazy sense, just standard code breaking simply because it, it triggers him so much and he gets a bit obsessed with it. You actually see along the way here as he starts to get into you know, the, the later years of his life that the, the makeup on Russell Crowe's face starts to reciprocate that as well. Did you know they actually started to mould the, the facial structures of John Nash himself? Mm. On Russell Crowe with the extra flabby skin on the neck and that rather than go with what Russell Crowe would look like when he was older. Yeah, no, I did say that. And that's, I think, yeah, I think the makeup was actually pretty great. Yeah, I think it's really good. It's, it's not over the top. It's not, doesn't look fake. I wasn't a fan of Alicia's though, in all honesty. It didn't even look like her. Like that scene when she's sitting in the audience when he's accepting the Nobel Prize, I actually thought it was someone else. I'm like, is that, really? is that Jennifer Connolly? I just thought her hair was different. Her face actually wasn't aged that much at all. I, I thought it was someone completely different. Okay. That's acting for you. 
Not sitting there in makeup. Well, I mean, they got nominated for makeup as well. They as lost, they should. But... Who they lose to? In the bedroom? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we get the scene here where John's in the library and we mentioned it before. The kid comes running up to him um, and says, oh, you know, are you John Nash? Can you have a look at this sort of thing? And so Martin sees this. He goes and gets Alicia and you see her walk in and see, see John sort of like teaching these three guys. Yeah, he's finally sitting down and interacting with young and, students. And using his talents for, like, how they should be used. Yeah. And, you know, we get the next scene. Martin asks John if, if the hallucinations are gone. And he looks over. No, they're not. And they're all, they're all just walking next to him, the yeah. three of them. He says, no, they're not, but everyone's haunted by their past. Yeah. And I think, I think that was pretty uh, touching. Because he's trying to, like, justify it as, I'm not so different as everyone. Like, everyone has these demons they carry with them. I can just see mine. You know, that sort of thing. Like, he's trying not to make himself feel so abnormal. Yeah. And then you get that payoff now when he's sitting in the, the high tea room and everyone starts to give him their pens. And it's a very touching moment. Yeah. Nice score to go with it. And you can see the genuine emotion from Nash Crow here as he's receiving all these pens from all these other academic scholars. Yeah, as we said, it had to happen, but... Yep. Even knowing it was happening, knowing it was going to happen and that it was a bit corny, I, I, still, I still did feel the emotion from it. Yeah. And I think that, as you say, goes to show the um, talents of Russell Crowe here. But I'll, before they get in there, it, you know, they, he starts rambling on about tea and oh, I don't think these people have the right tea and all that. And like that's that's actually really what happened when um, they were interacting with the real life John Nash. And after after it finished, Russell Crowe turned to Ron Howard and said, I'm using that. I'm putting yeah. that in. That's, that's great. <laughs> so, I did like that. But there's a line here where they're talking about the only reason this guy from the Nobel Peace Prize Academy has come down is to see if he's still crazy. And Russell Crowe says that... I take the newer medications. When, in fact, John Nash at this point in his life wasn't taking medication when he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, I think they had to put that in the film so they didn't try and glorify not taking medication. Like, So the people who were on these medications were like, oh, well, why, why do I need them if yeah, this guy is exactly doing right. so well? They didn't want to promote others with mental illnesses to stop taking their medication. Yeah. So that's why they did put that line in of Nash saying he was taking it. But from this point where Alicia decides to stay with him... The real-life John Nash actually did not have any medication at all. Mm. And he just used, a you know, like a mind-over-matter sort of technique of just ignoring them for his entire life, basically. Yeah. Now, obviously, if we're talking about the real-life John Nash, we're talking about voices in his head as opposed to real-life people walking around, but it's still... Still be pretty hard. Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah. I would say it'd be very, very difficult. I mean, all of you people out there listening right now are going through the same thing. You're hearing all these voices. You can't see anything. <laughs> Faces built for radio. And, uh, <laughs> um, while we're talking about the real life John Nash, there were a few things that uh, were deliberately omitted. Yeah, he was actually married twice, but it was to the same person. Yeah, the same person. Yeah. So, I actually looked up the sort of years that they were married, and they were married from like 1950 to 60-something, and then... They didn't get married again until 2000 and something. Yeah, he actually had several affairs with both women and men. Yeah, and he was actually arrested at one point for, you know, exposing himself in a in a uh, homosexual way. He also fathered a child out of wedlock in his 20s as well. 
Yeah, which is never mentioned in the no, film. Because they it's it's the biopic. They've got to have all the good things. Yeah, like yeah. he's obviously the hero of his own story and you try and avoid these you know, negative things. Oh, I would have loved it if they added this in where he believed that through his mental illness the extraterrestrial spoke to him. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> it's going to be a sci-fi going with this yeah, film. That would have been different. That would have been different. <laughs> he also tried to renounce to his uh, American nationality at points as well in the belief that the US government were pursuing him. Yeah. And he also made numerous anti-Semitic comments during his period of extreme mental illness, which most of which equated Jews with world communism. So definitely got to admit that. Awkward. And if anyone didn't know it out there as well, John and Alicia Nash have actually passed away recently. They were killed in a car accident a couple of years ago. Yeah, they didn't have their seatbelts on apparently yeah, and they they were ejected from the vehicle. Yeah, so that's right. Sounds pretty horrifying and it's sad. Like, yeah. they lived their whole life, their whole lives dealing with this incredibly hard mental illness together, and something so trivial is just going to end it all. Just finally, the speech that John makes as his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize, uh, I thought was, was uh, beautiful. It was. It was really good. And I, lo- I love the way he talks about love and logic and sort of is talking about love in a sort of mathematical sense, but. The way he says it, he's talking to his wife, he's saying, I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. You are all my reasons. Singling her out, and I just, like, I admit it, I choked up a bit at this point. Yeah, this movie's message is, ba- is like, right here, as well as in the title, A Beautiful Mind. You know, John Nash's mind was schizophrenic and beautiful. He, he was a visionary man who was heroic on both a grand scale, like he won a, a little thing called the Nobel Prize, no biggie, and on a personal scale, like he was able to pursue a career and establish a, a warm and loving family life at the same time when schizophrenia was especially stigmatized. So it's fair, like it's a, it's works well with the title and how his speech here at the end. Indeed. And if that's, if you've got nothing else to say, Dean, you didn't have much to say during this, so why don't we just get into it? <laughs> Any last words? Mate, I carried this one. You were useless. <laughs> Why don't you kick it off with your final thoughts, Dean? All right. A Beautiful Mind is a fantastic real-life story that has taken a few liberties to create a cinematic experience that really captures the life of a paranoid schizophrenic. The performances here are all stellar, from Jennifer Connelly right down to Christopher Plummer, but unsurprisingly, it is Russell Crowe who shines here. For a guy known mainly at this point in his career for his tough guy roles, Crow commits to being scared and confused most of the time with his illness, expertly conveying John Nash's small tics and mannerisms. Whilst it's not the easiest film to analyse deeply, it is nonetheless a fantastic film that had me close to tears seeing this man finally find a way to live his life in a manner that suits someone of his amazing intellect. And watching it again now, knowing that, There are so many clever ways Ron Howard rewards viewers on repeat viewings. This is an unusual movie for me in that I can think really of no negatives for it for me personally, but it's not one of my favourite movies by any stretch. Crow should have got the Oscar. What are your final thoughts, Hendo? Well, it's not too shocking to say that this film is not as good as I remember it. When I watched it from my initial Top 250 challenge, I thought it was intriguing, exciting at times, and a great midpoint twist reveal, as well as a delightful score and some kick-ass acting. And this go-around definitely felt like it was dragging at times for me. It overstayed its welcome with its runtime. Knowing what was happening now really lowered the excitement and intrigue it had the first time around, and left me grasping onto other positive things to help me. 
And there still are other good positive things. Russell Crowe is absolutely sensational in this film and was robbed of a back-to-back Academy Award win. Jennifer Connelly was good as well. I can't compare her to the other nominees that year, but overall I would actually say that she would be on the lower spectrum of overall winners of that award throughout the years. The score is still delightful and a joy to listen to, but other than that, everything else is just perfectly fine for me. There's a lot of films out there that everyone says you need to watch twice to fully understand or enjoy. I feel like this film is the exact opposite. I would have been perfectly fine watching this just once. I would still recommend this to people who haven't seen it before, but since there are none of those people here right now, you know who you are if you are, I don't think there's anything extra to offer all of you out there who have seen it already. If you enjoyed it a lot the first go around, just keep it that way. For me, it's still a thumbs up, but just barely now. Wow, just barely. Yeah. That's harsh. Well, that's my opinion. I was the best because the crowd loved me. So, Dean, where does A Beautiful Mind sit with you in your 10 films we've done now? 10. 10 films. Who'd have thought we'd get to 10 films? Everyone who's ever listened to us, how dare you? Uh, for me, it's actually it was actually pretty easy for me to place this one on my list, to be honest. It's definitely not better than Django Untrained, but for me, it's actually better than The Prestige. So, I'm going to put it at 6th now out of 10. What about you, Hendo? Yeah, it's unfortunate for me to say that this is actually at the bottom for me now. What? Yeah. I'll That's put this incredible. At number 10. Yeah, I just didn't didn't enjoy it as much. Were you like in a bad mood or something when no, you watched it? I just wasn't feeling it, this film, the second go around. If I if I was to go off when I watched it the first time, I would probably put it uh, below Django as well. No, I would probably... Yeah, I would probably put it below Django. I would probably had it at number seven, but... It just dipped for me on this one, so I'll put it at number 10 for now. It's not going to stay at number 10. I, I don't think... That when we get to other movies, there are definitely going to be other movies that are... There are definitely probably going to be other films. I can't say definitely, probably. Eighty <laughs> percent de- of the time, it works every time. <laughs> There's definitely going to be other films that are lower than this, but for now, it's it's the worst. Yeah, I think probably for you that having to go through and watch a movie with a really close eye and trying to find things to talk about probably hurt your viewing experience of this film. <laughs> well, what? Because I'm not capable of doing that. No, because you didn't find much there, so you you downgrade the movie. I think if you just sat there and watched it through without having to... I did that the first time. Yeah, and you gave it four stars. But what, what about you? You had to go through the same experience. You had to go through and find stuff. Yeah, but I can sort of go above that. Uh, <laughs> I knew I, can, I was waiting I can, for it. I can look from, I was from, waiting for from the... outside and and appreciate that just for the because inside. there's not a heap to... I mean, we say okay, like there's, there's not, not a lot to... No, know. There was a bit I to just, get I into it's here. A, it's a fine film. It's still a good film. You just said because there's not as much. Yeah, that's why it's lower. All right. Next segment. We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is. And this oh. could be it. Oh. It's just the one review this week, guys. From Shane. It's from Shane. Classic Shane. Okay. I've seen this film a million times. Really? Wow. Why'd you look at me like I knew that? No, like, it's just... That's surprising. I guess part of the fun is knowing in advance John Nash is crazy and seeing how the film hints at it incessantly leading up to the midpoint reveal. I agree. Nash's condition, coupled with some very poor social skills leads the audience to sympathise with the wounded genius character. While it hosts many big-name stars and is based on a true story, A Beautiful Mind never escapes the artificial feel of being a mainstream Hollywood production. It's sad and emotional, but it's also trying really hard to be. Something about the whole thing is off. 
Having said that, it's pretty entertaining, and Russell Crowe is amazing in this role. It's a good film, not a great film. I don't think there's a lot else to say about it. <laughs> yeah. All right, Shane. Thank Fair you. enough. Thank you very much for that one. Thank you. Remember, guys, if you'd like to send in your reviews of the movies that we talk about on here, you can either get a hold of us on Twitter at IMDB Journey, or like Shane, you can send us an email at IMDB Journey at gmail.com. So let's uh, take a step back here to last week where we ran a Twitter poll to see who was right in whether Anton Chigurh killed the accountant or not. Now, you said that he did. Yes. I said that he didn't. No. Now, the last time we checked it, it was dead 50-50. We still have, we haven't seen the, f- the final results yet, so why don't we go have a check of it now? Ready? Yep. Oh! Boom. No way! Yeah! With 57% of the vote, yes, Anton Chigurh did kill the accountant. Well, that was, that was at 50-50 like you. a day ago. <laughs> All right, but at least it shows that... There is, it isn't a straight answer. Like this was neck and neck until the very end here, which is great. It was. It was. It was really good. To, it wasn't like spirited away, where as soon as I put the ball up, boom! It was. Yeah, it wasn't. Was, it wasn't a rigged one. It was good that uh, someone can win a fair one finally. Well, aren't we glad I didn't uh, put a bet on that one? What? Yeah, we, we didn't put a bet on that. Oh, you're watching a movie for this. Oh, okay. Why don't we go back and have a listen to last week? Are week's you serious? Episode? We've done a bet, and you're not doing a movie. There is actual evidence here that we did not put a bet on this. What's the point of this if we're not we anything at stake? We put a movie on everything. We didn't put a bet on it. Wow, sore loser. That's sore really loser. bad. Guys, Are you back, serious? Guys, go back and listen. Who to cares? Go back and listen. Every every little bet we make, right, we put a movie on it. All right. Don't puss out of it because you're lost. Well, I think you'll want to just hold on to that for a second because just in case, we've got a... Pop quiz, asshole. So, what I have here, Dean, is 20 famous movie plots explained in 140 characters or less. Okay? And it's your job to figure out what the movie is. <laughs> okay. So, I'll, I won't lie. These are... This is definitely going to be a little bit harder than your box office one that you smashed. So, out of 20, I'm saying if you can get at least 11. Okay. Okay? 11. Must be pretty hard if you're giving me 11. 11 and it's, it's a movie. So, you have the option to give me... What? 11 and it's a movie. 11, right, and you oh. get to choose another movie for me. Yep, okay? another one. Yep. Yeah. Okay, what do you think of that? You good for that? Yeah. Cool. All right. And, and if I get, if I don't get that... If you get 10 or less, yeah. I give you a movie as well. Okay, if I get 10 or less. Okay. All right, and you folks at home can play along here too. Now, some of these are going to be fairly simple. Are they cryptic? Some of them are. <sighs> okay, let's go with the first one here. Oh, wait a minute. Cue the music. All right. How about this one? Bad parenting begets the next Ice Age. I mean, I feel like Ice Age is too obvious. Is that your answer? I, I don't know. Like it, I don't remember Ice Age well enough, and I feel like you wouldn't give me one that actually has the name of the movie in there. So, no, it, it won't be Ice Age. I'm just trying to think the next Ice Age. Bad parenting. Like, is it dinosaur related? Is it something like The Day After Tomorrow? Bad parenting. Is there bad parenting? There is bad parenting in that. Is it the day after tomorrow? Final answer. Mm. It's frozen. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That was... Yeah, I was never getting that. All right, next one, Dean. Man's chronic insomnia gets out of hand. Fight Club. Yes. Very good. Okay. I'm on the board. Next one. Bullied kid solves all of his problems and gets a girlfriend by learning how to kick people in the face. I mean, I just jumped straight to kick ass, but... Again, that's just because the word kick is in it. Plus, I don't think he gets a girlfriend from it. 
The Karate Kid. Yes. 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 Very good. All right, two to one, your way. Next one. A PTSD-ridden Canadian visits Tokyo, then punches everyone with his claws when he realizes that the Japanese can't be trusted. The Wolverine. Very good. (laughs) All right, next one here, Dean. Teenage girl resorts to extreme body modification to get a guy to like her and get back at daddy. I don't think it'd be like a teenage sort of school rom-com. It'll be something that's like... I'm just trying to think of a teenage girl who has extreme body modifications. Like, what would they be? It wouldn't be like huge tits or anything, would it? Maybe? Get back at daddy. Like, I'm thinking I'm thinking like a superhero. Like, what superheroes are they? Don't know. The Little Mermaid. Wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't have got that. Next one here, Dean. Aliens destroy city because of land dispute. Oh, I don't know. This is a tough one. <sighs> Aliens destroy... Is it Independence Day? Man of Steel. So what? Land, land dispute. What land dispute is it? I'm guessing it's the, the planet. Okay, sure. What's the score? Three all? It is three all. Next one. Father gets killed by a black guy. Becomes racist. Realize racism is wrong. Brother gets killed by a black guy. American History X. Very good. All right, next one here, Dean. Car chase. 96 minutes of other stuff. What? Are you expecting me to get this? Car chase? This would probably be the one out of all of them that you would probably not get. I'd say this is the hardest of all of them for you. Car chase, 96 minutes of other stuff. The French Connection. Not a bad guess, actually. It's Bullet. <sighs> that was a pretty good guess. That was a good guess. It was probably like 97 minutes for the French Connection. All right, Dean. Trade negotiations run into unexpected difficulty. What? Trade negotiations. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Oh, holy shit. Boom. How did you get that? <laughs> Man, I'm a big fan of those uh, trade talks in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Fuck's sake. <laughs> All right, it's five to four your way. All right, next one, Dean. Hamlet meets cats. Oh, I don't know Hamlet very well. Meets cats. Do you mean the musical or the animal? I mean, I guess, what's the difference? Hamlet meets cats. What cat movies are there? I hope this is actually about cats. Because if I need to know the plot of the musical Cats, then I'm in trouble here. I can't think of any movie with cats in it. Stop it. Are you giving me clues? Why would I give you clues? Is it somewhere in time? No, I'm joking. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Hamlet meets cats. Saying it over and over isn't going to make you I'm just trying to think, like, Hamlet's, like, family dispute and murder and betrayal and stuff. Cats. Do you mean the animal or the musical? If it's a musical, I've got no idea. I can't think of any movie with cats. What movie? Lady and the Tramp? That has cats in it. That's mainly dogs, though. You wouldn't call that Hamlet with cats. Or maybe it's Hamlet plus cats. But they're not related. There's no family in that. Am I close? Am I warm? Just, come on. Mean Girls. No, the Lion King. You were so close to that family and betrayal and death. How did I not get the Lion King? (laughs) How did I get a lady in the tramp and not Lion King? (laughs) Alright, it's tied up, five each. Am I where you thought I'd be? Um, Yeah, it's good. Alright, number 11, Dean. Great Grandma tells a group of strangers about the time she screwed a bum. Titanic. Nice, good pick. Good pick up there. I'm just trying to think, what story is a really old lady telling it? I'm like, yeah, Titanic. All right, next one, Dean. Man gets a bad case of cabin fever, but he finally chills. The Shining. <laughs> yeah. Nice little play on words there. Yeah, I like that one. Next one. So, yeah, it's seven now. Ooh, okay. Man with below average IQ takes credit for events other people actually did while looking for his hippie girlfriend who had his love child. Forrest Gump. Nailed it. <sighs> Is it good? Eight to five. Could be in trouble. 
Next one. Brave mother and father rescue their kidnapped children from a serial killer who wears her victim's skin. 101 Dalmatians. Oh, man. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah. I'm actually... If I lose this, I'm actually happy because it's, <laughs> it's some good, solid work you're putting in here. These are really good. They're clever. All right, Dean, next one. Man with porn stash and nice apartment falls in love with computer but can't fuck it. I'm leaning towards her, but I just don't know if he has a porn stash. I don't remember seeing a porn stash there. Like, who has a porn stash? 40-year-old virgin? He doesn't fall in love with a computer, that's like Blade Runner. Does he have a porn stash? Is she a computer? I'll go with her. Let me have a look at that picture. Oh, awesome. He does have a porn stash. Does he? I yeah. don't remember that. All the other ones don't have mustaches at all. What? None of the other, none of the movies you just said, besides her, have mustaches. 40-year-old virgin is... Did you say mustache? Porn stash. You said mustache. Man with porn stash. So like a porno, 70s porno style mustache. I thought you meant like a stash oh! of porn at his house. <laughs> and you still got it. That's ridiculous. That's why I was saying I'm thinking her, but I don't remember a wow. porn stash that's at his I house. Said, that's why I said look at the picture for his porn stash. Like oh, the... no, I didn't get you meant And you still got mustache. it. Wow, yeah. there's you like two points for that. I'm not going to give it to you, but... Well, I don't think I need it. What am I at? Yeah, so it's nine to five now. So, Dean, you got to get two out of the next six. Okay. Two out of the next five, sorry. Two out of the next five, my apologies. Next one... An attempt to mitigate a union worker's on-the-job death reveals the unexpected drawbacks of replacing human labour with automated machines. Elysium? No, Robocop. Oh, I would never have gotten that. Alright, still two out of the next four, so it's not banked yet. Here you go, Dean. Hilarious drill sergeant trolls a dipshit. Then it turns out the war is unpleasant. Obviously, I'm thinking Full Metal Jacket, but is he hilarious? I mean, the audience thinks so. Oh, no, the people in there are laughing. Trolls? I don't think he's trolling him. What other drill sergeants are there? Major Payne? Alright, I'll go Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, you're right. Okay. One more, Dean. Would have been cool if it was Major Payne, though. Alright, here we go. Batteries go bad. The Matrix. <laughs> Boom! I had, Nailed it! I had three left and I picked that one first because I thought it was the hardest. Oh, so that okay. we could try and maybe get like right at the end. Yeah. What are and the others? The other ones are beta testing reveals Park is too buggy to launch. Uh, Jurassic Park? Yep. And a growly-voiced billionaire tries to solve his emotional issues, fails awesomely. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that. The Aviator? Oh, really? Batman Begins. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I think you should lose for that. No. I killed that. <laughs> nah, well done, Final Dean. score. Final score is 13 to 7. 13 to 7. Very good. Which is still good, because I was actually going to see... I was going to initially have it as you get 13 or more, so... So, well. either way, I'm good. Yeah, well done. All right. Two movies for you to watch... Am I going to get punished for my Fifty Shades Freed? Oh, I forgot about that. Um, I like to bring those things up. All right, I'm going to go with a classic. I like classics. One of the all-time classics. Here we go. From the 70s. What's it going to be? Starring Marlon Brando. It could be anything. Was it Last Tango to Paris? It's Superman. Oh, was- yes. I was saying, saying to myself, ages ago, <laughs> how have you not got me to watch Superman yet? Yeah, watch Superman. Oh, yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's cool. And the next one is a movie I saw, I think, when I was a teenager and really liked it. And I just want to know if it uh, holds up. It's called Fresh. Okay, I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. All right. I'll be watching Fresh. Good. I look forward to hearing what you think of them. So, what's next? All right. What are we seeing next week? All right. We've got number 195, Dean. What is 195? What is it? You've got to be grin. Jesus Christ. Um, 195 is Ben-Hur. Whoa! Monster epic long film. All right. 
We're going to be watching Ben-Hur this week. Yeah, it's not as long as Once Upon a Time in America. I haven't seen Ben-Hur. Have you seen it? Oh, you haven't? This is your first movie you haven't seen? Yes. I've definitely seen it. Wow, this is going to be good. Get your fresh thoughts. They will be very fresh. All right. Okay, so as you loyal listeners know, we've been doing a couple of little drafts here and there over the last couple of episodes. We're finally going to bunker down on that now with our new segment. DVD challenge. Let the games begin. Challenge accepted. And we have a DVD because it's Daniel versus Dean. Obviously, we used to do this last year as well, our little challenge. Just privately. Just privately. <laughs> where we used to give each other... Because uh, that's what cool kids do. Two movies a week uh, <laughs> last year at some point. And we had to watch those within the week or the other person got a six-pack of beer for the other. And it never actually happened because we were quite good at keeping up with mm. the movies we watched. We were. So what we're going to do with this DVD challenge now is with the movie that's coming up for the week, we're going to find a theme based off that movie and we're going to do a five-movie draft each. And we'll get you, the listeners, to decide who has the overall best team of movies. We'll put a Twitter poll up every week and you guys can vote. And in the theme of Ben-Hur, why don't we go with movies that have received eight or more Academy Award wins in their year of being picked? Mm. What do you think of that, Dean? That's a fantastic idea, Daniel. All right, so we're going to bring up that list now. We'll be back in a quick second. And we're back. back. (laughs) And we're back. All right, so we found out there are 15 films we can choose from here, so we've got five each to choose from. And since I apparently rigged it last time by going first, Dean, why don't you start us off this week? Okay, I'm going to start with my personal favourite from this list, uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King. It's a very fine choice. (laughs) You just took my number one off the board. All right, so I am going to go with Gone with the Wind. And I'm going to follow up with Amadeus. I can't believe you chose them. Nah, that's fine. I'm going to take uh, Titanic and Slumdog Millionaire. 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 All right. I will come back at you with On the Waterfront. Hmm? And I'm going to go with West Side Story. So what are your last two for your team? Team Dean. I'll go with Ben-Hur. Why not? And My Fair Lady. Okay, and my last one I'm going to choose here is Gandhi. Okay. Alright, so we'll put that Twitter poll up at some point during the week after you guys have had a quick listen to this. Even Gandhi ate more than this. (laughs) (gasps) What's that from? Just eat. Eat what? Gandhi ate more than this. I can't remember. Hook, you fool. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's going to do it for this breakdown of, what did we do? The Beautiful Mind, that's right. So stick around after our next promo and break where, we've been, where we'll be talking about what else we've been watching, but that's going to do it. Perhaps it is good to have a beautiful mind, but an even greater gift is to discover a beautiful heart. A beautiful mind. In a world with an oversaturation of movie podcasts, comes two hosts lacking in movie knowledge, but making up for it with original movies. All right, so we got a stenographer, vigilante Indian who kills people with goat horns. (laughs) And goat bullets. The stenographer, colon, 
read that back to me. Original songs. All he can say, two words, one phrase, whole smash. Add Lincoln notes to your playlist, otherwise you are a racist. And original trailers for fictional movies. Adam Sandler and introducing Sarah Lee Evanson as Sarah Lee Evanson in Infinite Blood. Ted Bundy shames DMX a lot. Like, no joke, I told a 12-year-old kid not to f*** up his acting. It's our podcast, you dicks. Movie speaking. Welcome to Dial M for Movie. Three questions, two minds, one podcast. That also ends our spoiler-filled territory, I guess. We're now into the spoiler-free zone, so we will not be spoiling the movies we're about to discuss that we've been watching throughout the week. So if you haven't seen them, that's okay. Listen to hear what we thought of them and go from there. All right, Dean. How many movies did you watch this week? This week, I watched four other movies other than A Beautiful Mind. How many did you watch? That's pathetic. Yeah, here we go. I watched four too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What's your excuse? I already gave my excuse at the start of the what the work. Podcast. I was tired as hell. I fell asleep most nights. Laziness. I usually get. A, I usually get to watch. I at least watch a lot of sport and TV shows. So you choose not to watch. I because I choose not, not to watch. I, what's the line? I choose not to run. I choose not to run. <laughs> <laughs> I can kick us off if you like. Yeah, go for it. What's your worst film of the week? My worst film of the week. <laughs> Sorry, Shade. Is Day of the Dead. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Okay, so my brother Shane, he raved about this movie, uh, gives it five stars, says I have to see it. So I finally, I put the effort into seeing it, and uh, yeah, worst movie I saw last week. So. <laughs> uh, where, do, where does it match in like films you see in general? Like, you've only seen four, so you could you could have your other three films of five stars, yeah. and this one's a four, yeah, so... I give this one and a half stars. Well, Okay. <laughs> This is the third movie in George Romero's zombie trilogy following Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. I don't mind the odd zombie movie and I was a big Walking Dead fan until the last two seasons went to shit, but I did not like this movie. I've read many glowing reviews for it, but I cannot get around it. The acting is B-grade. The generic zombie look does not hold up to today's standards at all. And whilst the insanely gruesome special effects in this movie would have certainly been impressive in 1985. It doesn't really hold a candle to what The Walking Dead has been able to do recently. There are some interesting and original ideas in this film, though. Having the split between the military guys and the scientists was a wise decision, and seeing how far one scientist in particular is able to go on their research is surprising. But I can't get past that this film bored the shit out of me. It took me three goes to get through it, like in Inherent Vice did last week. It's just not for me. Fair enough. Avoid, like right. the zombie plague. <laughs> All right, so my number four for the week. I guess I can say sorry, Shane, as well, because I think I just saw his recent uh, good review for it. It's Red Sparrow. From this day forward, you will become sparrows. Weapons in a global struggle for power. You'll be trained in psychological manipulation. You must learn to push yourself beyond all limitation. Take off your clothes. 
When we are finished with you, the person you were will no longer exist. Ah, I thought this was a fucking mess. This movie, you got this unbelievable main character in Jennifer Lawrence, this ballerina who turns into this Russian spy in the blink of an eye. Like, it's so quick when it happens. Like, there's, that is no way, like, I just didn't believe it. It was implausible. Mm-hmm. The, the accent is cringy at times. Like, it's is very, really? it's very noticeable. The, the film itself is so overly complex and confusing. I struggled through this film. Like, it sounds like Atomic Blonde. Is she with the Russians or is she the, is she the Americans? And it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you honestly can't tell. And it goes for so long. You, 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 I was getting bored at times. I'm like, all right, come on, let's, 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 let's get it going. And the ending felt way too like it just, it tied it all up in a neat little bow. Like it was just perfect, mm. perfect tie. Like, no, no, I don't buy it. It tries to throw in this comic relief character, which goes on for way too long and feels so out of place for the rest of the tone of the film, which is, you know, gritty, spy, you know, torture kind of stuff going on. I mean, Joel Edgerton is good in it, and he's, he's usually good in everything he's in. I can't really think of anything bad he's been in, like, acting-wise. And the thing is with the ending as well is when it answers the question of who she, which side that she eventually ends up on, if the answer was reversed, nothing else changed. Like, it would have been the same, which annoyed me. So this is this is not a good film. You can skip this. We also had a couple of comments here from Alfred Brothers, a mad scientist at a mad scientist said a solid spy film that meanders in the middle. I also thought it focused too heavily on the sexploitation aspect of the sparrows and would have preferred to see other spy type activity. Thanks for that, mate. Also got one from the FYM podcast at FYMP cast. Interested to hear your thoughts on it. Felt like a meandering journey through a very seedy and not particularly interesting corner of the cinematic world to me. So thanks for that, guys. Dean, what's your number three for the week? My number three for the week was, and still is, uh, The Commuter. Oh, you watched it and you didn't like it. Yeah. Told ya. This movie actually started off not too bad, to be honest. Did you get that synecdoche New York vibe from the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can see why you went with that. It yeah. was very um, synecdoche New York. Um, thankfully, that's where it stopped being like synecdoche New York. Yeah, um, you don't like that film. Not at all. Yeah, the commuter really took its time to set up the scenes involving the train. <laughs> Liam Neeson is always pretty enjoyable and the supporting cast wasn't too shabby either but this movie just gets worse and worse the longer it goes <laughs> culminating in a cringy ending devoid of any originality or ambition the CGI in this film is Matrix Reloaded levels of cartoon <laughs> and when you throw in a really old now Liam Neeson doing stunts it just looks ridiculous Every character in this film is a stereotype and has no real character development. Avoid. Fair enough, I completely agree. My number three for the week is also a Liam Neeson film from a couple of years ago. It's A Walk Among the Tombstones. Okay. Now, I heard good things about this. Like, it was a a lot different, but it's not. It's really like all the other Neeson post-taken action films that are out there now. I was expecting a lot more than what I got. The characters are like... They're bland. They don't get fleshed out. If no one knows a part of this film, it's about he's a, he's a re- retired police officer who works privately now, and he helps these drug dealers find like these killers who who kidnap their wives. Is it a western? No, no. Is there a movie called Tombstone that's a western? Is that an actual question? Yes. 
You're not talking about the Western Tombstone starring Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer from the early 90s, are you? The classic Tombstone. I haven't seen it. But you talked like you didn't even know it existed. Well, in my mind, I've got Tombstone as a Western, and I thought Walk Among the Tombstone was that movie. Okay, I can see why you wouldn't be confused there. What I was saying, as I was really interrupted by someone who doesn't know, you know, classic movies. Says someone who hasn't seen Superman or The Sound of Music. (laughs) (laughs) I most definitely got put in my place there. (laughs) No, like... uh, I don't understand how we're supposed to sympathise with these drug dealers who whose wives get kidnapped. Like they're showing, like they'd be all emotional. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about you. You're this kingpin drug dealer. Like that's the reason why they get kidnapped is because of you. you, yeah. you like, I don't. I didn't get it. I, I didn't care for them. There's nothing that stands out in this film. It's just one of those decent action films that didn't do it for me. Nah, skip. Fair enough. Uh, my next movie is All the Money in the World. I heard a lot about this movie, obviously, around the Kevin Spacey whole issue and, you know, leading up to Oscars, there was some Oscar buzz around it. It didn't really eventuate too much. Obviously, Christopher Plummer got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. This is a fairly stock standard hostage negotiation movie. The most interesting thing about this movie is that they replaced Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer. A month before the movie's release date, which is seriously pretty incredible. The rest of it is a pretty slow and safe movie about a true story. Usually in true story movies, the movie often over-dramatizes certain aspects to make it more thrilling. But here, after reading about the real-life story afterwards, it's clear that the makers of this film actually dialed down the brutality of the story. Uh, Which is unfortunate. This movie didn't really have any impact on me. Very forgettable. I would avoid Alright, so my number two film of the week was a film I actually watched today with my children. It's a 2018 film, a Netflix original. It's called Benji. Fucking hell, Benji! And it's just a simple little children's film about a dog who starts getting together with this family, these two kids, and then, you know, some really insane stuff goes down for a kid's film. Like, it involves some kidnappings and stuff like that. In a kid's film? In a kid's film. There's actual kidnapping. Are you sure your kids weren't just really tired? I was waiting for a drum. I was waiting for a drum this this whole podcast. You got one in at the end. I'll tell you, those crickets are gone now, man. <laughs> no, this film is is it's just, it's just passable. Like it's it's like Milo and Otis, and, and I love Milo yeah, and exactly. Otis. Exactly, I love it too. But and it's like that where most of this stuff is the dog doing stuff. The dog is it live action? Yeah, where dogs don't normally do this stuff. Like he's an incredibly smart dog, and you see. They, they, he chases after the, the these kidnappers and, the, and keeps up with the car. So like it's 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 very childish and dumb. It's also very emotionally manipulative. You cried, didn't you? I did, but because my daughter cried, <laughs> I cried because she cried. That's touching. It was. I thought I felt it was. But overall, like it, it's it's a fun film. Like you you can sit down with your kids; they'll love it, and you'll you'll love it just enough where you can say, "Yeah, it was fine." Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, probably we'll give it a miss. All right, Dean, what's your number one film of the week? Number one film of the week, Burn After Reading. Nice. That's uh, my number one too. Yeah, I thought it might be. <laughs> what an unexpectedly funny movie this is. Um, this is about a couple of idiot gym workers who stumble upon CIA classified information and don't know what to do with it. The, the chemistry between all of the incredible actors in this movie Clooney, Pitt, McDormand, Malkovich, Jenkins is spot on. It's Swinton, a... Simmons, come on. Don't don't finish off with Jenkins. He is an Oscar-nominated actor. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I must have forgot about J.K. Simmons, the Oscar winner. Yeah, J.K. Simmons is pretty awesome. <laughs> Tilda Swinton. I mean, take her or leave her. Anyway, it's a simple story. Great colours, and it's always entertaining. It's not a deep movie by any stretch, but you have an absolute ball watching this, and I would definitely recommend you all check it out. I'm definitely going to watch a few more common films after this. Yeah, I mean, you would never imagine that this was done basically side by side with No Country for Old Men. Mm. Like, they were working on these at the same time. Like, it's... Look at the contrast between them. They're night and day. There's nothing similar about them at all. There is one thing. Oh, what? Who's in it? No, they're both directed by the comments. Ah, shut, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, like you said, just a bunch of quirky, self-absorbed people in yeah. way over their heads. It's great, it's, though. It's funny. Brad Pitt is so oh, funny in this. He, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, they're fantastic. John Malkovich is great, as always, in this. You know, it's it's treated like this intense spy thriller, but it's just a bumbling mess. But it's mm. a, I mean that in the nicest way possible, because that's what the film is going for. It's, yeah. All these people are idiots, and... No one has any idea what's going on. They win way over their head. The people who are actually in charge just, I uh, have no idea what these people are doing. It's just, it's the bump, the most bumbling mess of a film that I loved. Yeah. No, I agree. It's, uh, yeah, I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed this movie. Yeah. So that's going to do it for the podcast this week. We look forward to hearing your feedback and thoughts. Yeah, and also, don't forget to go on Twitter and vote for either Team Dean or the other guy. I'm really looking forward to seeing the the wave of, tidal wave of results for Team Dean. So, really appreciate that in advance. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week for Ben Hur. Ben Hur. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.